Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bridge Street Capital Partners is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital market transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raises, please send them your details via an email to invest at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show in your message. Now on with the show. How are you now broadcasting from, well, broadcasting from someone else's studios today? The uh, the offices of, well, I'll give you a second where we're broadcasting from, but we are in Sydney. I'm looking at the Harbour Bridge uh, today. You are listening to The Bip Show, Season 5, Episode 3, I think, that we're up to. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that all financial information in this podcast is generally in nature. Only speak to a professional advisor about your needs. Coincidentally, I'm a professional advisor sometimes. My name is James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. Uh, I skipped Davos to be here, uh, and congratulations. Um, oh, I mentioned that, yep, Dave Payne and, uh, and Mel, a guest of ours, birth of their little one came along. So happy for them uh, as well. Good on him. The episode is being recorded in Sydney, I'll tell you where soon, on the 22nd of, of July 2022 AD. The time is 11 minutes past 12. It's Friday, it's lunchtime. So this is going to be a quick podcast for anyone who knows me and, uh, and loves me. Uh, our guest today is uh, Max Swango, Managing Director and Global Head of Client Portfolio Management with Invesco Real Estate. Invesco, uh, good enough to to, uh, to be able to let me host the BIP Show podcast here from their offices in Sydney today. We are going to be talking about offices as well. Uh, Mr. Swango first is one of the is the founding uh, what is it the, the the founding partner of the uh, of the uh, real estate fund. So I'm going all over the place here. He's been with Invesco for 30-odd years, I suppose. Correct me if I'm wrong on this one. Um, and knows if there's anything about the industry that he doesn't know, I'd be very keen to figure out what that is. Uh, not that we're here to really pick his brain, but what we're, what we're trying to do here is to make a pretty big global uh, uh, pretty big global thing, everyone knows I love that word, with regards to the Invesco real estate uh, fund and also with investing in real estate funds as well. We're just trying to democratise it and bring it sort of down to the common man and make it a little bit more accessible. Myself, as as an advisor, I do see uh, that sometimes clients are underallocated in the portfolio uh, in their portfolios for real estate. And one of my efforts is to try to make that a little bit more achievable. Invesco hopefully will be able to help us to get there. And Max as well. Max, thank you for joining us. How are you now? Thanks, James. Great, great to be here. Thank you. Uh, look, we're going to kick straight into it. Like I said, Friday it's lunchtime. It's a, it's a half decent day out there in um, in Sydney. Now, all guests. Um, High or low, uh, get asked the same question. Uh, what do you do and how do you make money? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. Uh, we, we invest in property. Yep. And uh, historically, we, we're up to about getting, getting very close to $100 billion of real estate assets under management globally, US, Europe, and Asia. 
Uh, we've been doing that for since the 1980s uh, when my partners and I started the firm. And uh, primar- uh, originally, it was for some of the largest institutional investors in the world. And as you mentioned, we've now brought that to the wholesale, the retail market as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty simple. Running a fund. That's good. <laughs> and uh, thanks again uh, for joining us. Now, one of the key things, and I've heard this thrown around a lot, uh, especially over the last well, last six months at least, talking about REITs and talking about property as being a great uh, a great trade when inflation is rising. Can you can you try and describe that to me, and 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 to to our listeners as to why that is? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And going back, I mean, when we started the business in the, uh, uh, 35 years ago, the there were there were multiple reasons that institutional investors like to invest in property, total return, income, diversification from the public markets and inflation, all of those. Uh, we kind of dropped, we went 30 years with, with very low to, to, if any, inflation, basically. And so we dropped the inflation from the uh, from the presentation. We've had to put it back in the last 12 months because it is number one on everyone's mind. Yeah. And if you go back and you just look at history, if you look at historical data, Property performs the best of any asset class at times when there's high inflation. So inflation is over four or five percent. The correlations from property returns to inflation are very, very are stronger than any other asset class. And there's lots of reasons. It's a hard asset class. It's more uh, the the cost of construction becomes higher. It costs more to build property, so it makes the value of your existing portfolio higher. Uh, we have the ability to raise rents in our portfolio. Okay. Uh, so we can pass. We can pass the increased cost of operating property onto our tenants and rents go up, cash flows go up and values go up. Yeah. And what, one of the, we've, uh, we've had previous guests on in the building industry, especially talking about the supply chain issues and the costs of, of the, of building supplies really impacting how much they can pass through to the, uh, to the end user. I, you, I can imagine that you wouldn't be as affected by that with regards to the building because a lot of what you've got is existing property, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 So historically, 90% of our, of our portfolios are existingly stabilized income producing assets. And at any point in time, we're, we're building 10% of our portfolio would be under construction. And uh, sort of a, you know, we like to build property so that we can own the newest, best properties at cost. That number will be coming down as as costs grow. Okay, well, fantastic. So, going with the inflation theme as well, where do you see it heading? I mean, have we actually peaked inflation yet? What is it? What is your What is your crystal ball tell you? Yeah, well, uh, as my clients know, I I cannot, I do not predict the future. Impossible to. I quit doing that a long time ago. <laughs> Good. Uh, the the recent numbers from the U.S. are awfully high, nine yes, percent plus. So. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is that um, once again, we're seeing property returns be very, very strong in an inflationary environment. So, yeah. so it's it's like here we go again, dust off the playbook because when inflation is high, property returns so far uh, uh, are are also very, very strong. Yeah, and so yeah. <laughs> The real estate, yes, okay, uh, that's fine. Inflationary uh, to be going up. Now, we've got a big sort of paradigm shift. So th- this show, ever since this show, the BIP show was actually born out of the pandemic. It was myself and, 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 a, and a couple of other fellows who put it together from our various areas and started it without really actually meeting each other. That was us working from home um, when we had to and we had to get that done. And it was born and we managed to fight through and, and, and make this into a, a semi-successful podcast. Thank you for listening and everyone who's helped us get there. Working from home 
it has become, and I, and I did mention, I've mentioned many times that that we saw so many people start to work from home and it became sort of the, the theme. And I, and I did say in 2020, this will be an ongoing thing. People will make this move and they're not going to be able to go back into the office as much as they wanted to. So the paradigm has shifted. Recently we've seen, and, and I did say that it would potentially mean that a lot of the commercial space, especially in Sydney, which is sometimes a bit of a ghost town anyway, uh, that the commercial space would then start to move into more of a, a, a residential area and Sydney would potentially become more of a living city as opposed to just you come in for work and then you leave at four o'clock and you don't see anyone else. And on Monday, you can't go and find anywhere to eat on Monday after, Monday evening because everything's shut because nobody's here. Um, so the chat from that, what's your take? Now, I heard you speak at the at the Investor Symposium uh, run by Inside Network, um, good friends of ours too, good friends of the show, uh, a while ago. Now, you, you talked about work from home, which is why I know that I can put this on your agenda, Max. Uh, <laughs> What's your what's your view on the work from home lifestyle yeah. around the world? Is it different around the world as well? Yeah, clearly, yes. So there's a lot there. Clearly, it is different around the world. But what is happening in Tokyo and Hong Kong and in parts in the big cities in Asia is very different than what's happening in some um, smaller cities in other parts of the world. It is much harder to work from home in Tokyo or Hong Kong than it is in Dallas, Texas, for example. Okay, you have smaller. You're in small apartments. You want to be in the office. Yeah. in those places. Let me tell you what's actually happening in our portfolios. Um, we are seeing the the highest quality office buildings achieve the highest occupancies and the highest rents that they've ever had in our portfolios. Yep. So tenants have recognized that they need to have their talented people together, IQ compounding, uh, creating, um, uh, cre- you know, moving the business forward. We can we can maintain our business on a Zoom call. You can't grow your business on a Zoom call. Yeah, that's what we're learning. And so companies are looking to they're also recognizing that in order to get their people to come back to the office, it has to be an interesting office environment. Yeah. So class A buildings in great locations, fully amenitized. ESG is super important. The best, the highest quality tenants that we want in our buildings the Microsofts, the Facebooks of the world, they have to, they, you've got to check that ESG box. Yep. The sustainability, very important. And you've got to offer, you know, the, the restaurants, the coffee shops, the hotels, all of the interesting things that go with uh, class A buildings have to be close by. Yep. So in our portfolio, those buildings have higher occupancies and higher rents than they've ever had. Um, the other end of the spectrum, the, the other end of the barbell, the lower quality commodity B and C quality buildings are having a hard time right now. Yeah. They're having a hard time leasing. That the jury's out on what will happen to those buildings. Some of those buildings are clearly getting turned into residential buildings yeah. because we're under we don't have enough residential product and we can talk about that later. Yeah. Generally speaking, in the major markets like the United States and Australia, um so some of that some of that repurposing is happening, but I I tend to believe that those B buildings will be interesting investments at some point because not everybody can can afford to pay $100 per, per square foot to be in the nicest building in Sydney or the yeah. nicest building in San Francisco. Yeah, they're not all Microsoft. They're not all Google. Exactly. Yeah. So those smaller businesses will come back. They will recognize that they need to have their people together in order to be better into IQ compound and have good, good R&D. You can't do it on a Zoom call. And so they're, they're going to want to go into interesting buildings in great locations where they can pay $50 per square foot instead of $100 per square foot, like in a class A building. Now, another thing that's important is we really haven't been through a compensation cycle yet. What's a compensation cycle? Uh, end of year compensation discussions, oh, how people goodness. get paid. Yeah. 
how people get promoted and paid. So one of, one of the things that I don't miss about working at a big bank was having that conversation <laughs> with people. Here's a list of things that you stuffed up this year, Jimmy. So yeah. thanks, Pat. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. You've got a list? It's coming no. soon. Okay, so no, okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's com- so come December, January, yeah. when the major companies, businesses go through their comp cycles and the people who are are uh, in the office yeah. who are out – well – Look at the people who are out of the office are out of sight, out of mind. And they're going to have a harder time during the compensation schedule. Yeah, and I, I do honestly believe that that is a fact as well. Right. I, I remember you said it at the symposium, and you can say it because I know it's fantastic about being promoted and, and staying staying where it is. What was the, what was the, the line? Was oh, if you want to get promoted, you better be in the office. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also hear a lot of talk about the younger people want to work from home or they want to work from the beach or they want to work from the mountains or whatever it is. Yeah. And um, I don't see that. And I, I don't, I, I actually have three kids in college right now and they're, they're doing summer internships. They don't want to go to an office where the, the senior people aren't there or where the senior people are only there three days a week. Yeah. They want careers. They want to be mentored. They want to network. They want the senior people there. Yeah. So when the the people, the superstars, when they go and interview and you tell them that uh, we have flex time and our people work from home on Mondays and Fridays, they leave the building. They're not interested. Is that so? Yes. What's wrong with a Monday and a Friday? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) sitting here. The the, um, that yeah, I I can see how that that is absolutely the case. Going forward with that, so we're going to have compensation. If you sort of start to play the tape to the end, where do you see a, a city? A city that is changing and shifting based on this thing, because you did say that people are going to ha- are going to be at home. The home is now being being turned into more of an office, so that people who do need to work from home can work from home. Not everyone is going to have that attitude. People do actually want to have a flexible a flexible working lifestyle. I, I know that I do. I know that my wife does as well. Um, I like to I like to be at home, but I like to be at work as well. I like to be sitting here in this beautiful office here at One Bly Street. Um, which I think is a seven-star rated um, building as well, and that's that's really top of, top of the range. I remember when it was built, um, what an amazing place it was. Where do you see a city like Sydney in, in, in going with that, with that barbell that you mentioned, that the buildings that are going up are seven stars? And those buildings will do great. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Sydney is in a, Sydney's in a great place. Sydney is one of the um, great cities of the world, as is New York and San Francisco and Melbourne. And, and uh, there's a list of, of 10 or 20 of those that, that, will be, that will always be desirable for people to uh, live, work, and play. Yep. No question. Now, there are certain industries where people have proven that they can be 100% effective at home. So back office, maybe accounting, back office, maybe that stays work from home or becomes even more work from low cost locations or low cost countries like India. Yeah, it has been it has been thrown around that if if you if you can do it from home, then theoretically it can be done from Hyderabad. Exactly. That's that's debatable. Um, there's a lot of professional services that have been doing quite well for two years and and not. It's it it is debatable. I think that there could be some jobs that are out there that do have that sort of scenario. That's right. Yeah. Um, now we, one more point on work. Sorry. And I do feel like I've been defending office my entire career because we had, we had a very similar debate in 1999 during the dot com boom. Yep. We were all going to get laptops and work from coffee shops. Yeah. The exact opposite has happened in every downturn in recovery where people have said, we're going to cut back on our office space during the downturn. You can't see, all you can see is how bad things are and there's layoffs and we've got to cut costs and you don't see the upside. And what happens is 
in, when we have when growth returns, the uh, the demand for office space significantly overwhelms the cost cutting that happened during the downturn. So think about think about 1999 yep. and uh, all of the companies that did not exist in 1999 that exist today and the amount, the millions of square feet that they occupy in in office space. Yeah. So the Facebooks, the Googles of the world, the LinkedIn's of the world that didn't exist when people said, you know what, we don't there's 20 percent of office space we don't need out there anymore. Because we're going to do all our back office, we're going to do all our accounting from home. They're not taking into account the the growth machine, the engines that that, that create growth and opportunities going forward when we have recoveries. That makes a lot of sense. That that, that and and we we will recover from this. So we'll talk about. I want to get to uh, retail in a second. Uh, I want to get to luxury luxury goods in a second as well because I, I, it's something that's close to my. Uh, my heart with regards to the portfolio that we get there. But you did mention that there's a residential, a resi product shortage. And I made sure I wrote that down doing my job here. Um, did you want to, what, what sort of a shortage is there? The funny thing also, I, I saw an amazing tweet talking about the, the, the push-pull between housing supply and the shortage and people who are backing it. People who invest in, in residential, so investors in a residential space will look for somewhere where there's a shortage because it's, it's, it's probably going to make that make that product go up. And then at the same time, you've got people who say, no, if we provide more supply into the housing market, it won't bring prices down. They can't both be right. And it, it, it infuriates me. If we want to make if we want to make affordable housing, we just need more houses. But you mentioned that there's a resi product shortage. I've gone off on a tangent on this one. So I'll let, let you go, Max, because you're the expert. Uh, yeah, you mentioned a couple of things there, resi and retail. Yep. We can cover both of them. Up yeah, we'll do, I want to do retail next. So we'll do yeah, resi, resi now. Yeah. Resi. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen occupancy rates higher today in residential product is, is what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about 97% plus occupancy in residential. Um, that is basically full. Uh, the number of markets that are less than 2% vacant is amazing. Um, there are markets like um, you look at, at markets like New York City, for example, where um, a lot of people um, left the cities during the lockdowns because there was no reason to pay high rents and live in the city if you weren't going to work and all the restaurants were closed. Mm-hmm. So they left and went other places. And then when the big banks uh, made their announcements and said, OK, everybody back to the office, particularly in New York City, everybody came back very quickly. And if you waited too long, you were left out. There is. There are no class A apartments for rent in, in Manhattan right now. Are you serious? Yes. That's so, I mean, oh, That's why rent's going up through the roof. Rents are, are higher than they've ever been. Yeah. Now, interestingly, um, values have not fully recovered. So the appraisal, there's a bit of an appraisal lag there. So okay. if you're looking for, I know you're always looking for unique opportunities. Yeah. There's a, there's a bit of an appraisal lag going on with some of the residential and some of the big cities yeah. where occupancies and rents are higher than they've ever been, but values aren't. Okay. And so that will happen. Yep. Values will so recover. Urban multi dwelling yes. investment there. Note That's that it. down. That's good. I've got a few ideas going off this already. We're yeah. making money for you, peer people. <laughs> so so uh, uh, go on. Sorry about that. There's Resi. The other super interesting thing on the Resi side is uh, what technology is doing to disrupt the single family rental market. So the single family rental market is the same size as the multifamily apartment market in the United States. It's huge. But like apartments back in the 1990s, the single family rental homes are um, almost or are, are 98% owned by mom and pops. They're owned by individuals. Yeah, okay. So somebody goes and buys a second, third, fourth home and they rent them out. That's the single family rental market there. We now have the technology that allows us to buy lease and operate single family home 
portfolios. Yep. So we can go as an institutional investor, we can invest, call it $50 million plus or minus per month in single family residential and build multi-billion dollar single family rental portfolios, similar to what we did with the, the apartments back in the 1990s. Okay. okay. So in 1990, apartments were close to 0% of our portfolio. Our portfolio back then, 35 years ago, was roughly half office and half retail. That is that is significantly changing. Going forward, I would suspect that residential is going to be 30 to 35% of our portfolio. And that residential is going to, ha- it will have a very interesting makeup divided between traditional multifamily apartments, single family rental portfolios, affordable housing, manufactured housing, student housing, senior housing. There's all kinds of different subsectors within residential that are all that all have their their unique um, opportunities. Yep. Single family rental is probably my favorite uh, for lots of reasons. One is barriers to entry. You've got to have the technology that allows you to buy, lease, and manage those properties, and not everybody not everybody has it. Yep. And uh, and then you've got to have the capital. You've got to have the capital to do it. So we will. I would suspect that of our hundred billion dollar portfolio, at some point in the future, call it five or ten years, ten percent of that will be in single family rental. Yeah, portfolios. Because of the and so the, the, the significance of the technology just means that you can scale into that barriers entry. It's yeah. hard to scale. Yeah. It's hard to scale, and and because of that, the uh, the yields are interesting. Go on. So you're you're buying these single family rental portfolios today. at call it a five percent cap rate or a first year income return of five. Yeah. Where traditional multifamily apartments today were three and a half, they're adjusting today. They're probably four. Yeah. So you get a nice hundred basis point head start from an income perspective. And those cap rates are not. I, I note here in a presentation that you did a while ago that cap rates don't change when in a rising interest rate environment. Historically, what we've seen is that when interest rates go up, cap rates have gone down, and that's because we've been in uh, growing economies. Yep. And when and and we've had growing uh, earning, we've had very strong earnings growth. Interest rates were going up to try to slow that earnings growth, you know, very strong economies. So investors are willing to pay lower cap rates for that strong net operating income growth historically. Now, we were seeing that up until about three months ago. We were seeing downward pressure on cap rates. We're still seeing that in some sectors, but not in all. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, if you go down that rabbit hole, you turn into a whole different podcast. It's probably a little bit too pointy headed for myself. Uh, The... Now, let's talk about retail. Um, I, I actually didn't give my market spiel at the beginning of it. I'm emboldened by how good this uh, this market has gone through the beginning of earnings season. Um, we've seen the NASDAQ pop up um, a few uh, a few percent over the last couple of trading days, and we've seen that, that, that good quality companies are getting bought. I'm very happy with that. I now actually have the ability to maybe make a move, and, and Morgan Stanley just recently went overweight into luxury goods, uh, especially European luxury goods. They see it as being a value play and also having the best exposure to a Chinese reawakening, which I'm big about as well going into the second half of this year. Let's talk about, let's talk about Louis Vuitton. Let's talk about Prada. I, I know that they're, they're products that are close to your heart. They're, Prada is definitely close to my wife's heart uh, as well. Trust me, I, I can see that. Hitting the account every couple of years in a nice handbag. But the, uh, now, how much shop front does, does a place actually need? You know, I'm going to give you the freest of free passes on this one. Uh, you can just go and just talk about, <laughs> talk about, talk about foot, foot traffic. Let's talk about retail. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, big picture again, you know, in the 1980s, retail was was somewhere around half of a portfolio, an, an institutional investor's portfolio, because you didn't have all the options that you had today, like residential. Going forward, retail is going to be a much smaller piece of an overall portfolio, call it 10 to 10 to 15 percent. So you're, you're now what's what you're left with. The story on retail is very similar to the story on office. What you're left with is in very high demand because there are winners and losers in the retail world. And and add Chanel to your uh, to your list of uh, of retailers. They're one of my favorites because during the during the uh, lockdown, they actually came to us and said we have there are two very large. I'm sorry, there are seven very large Chanel stores, full service Chanel stores in the United States. We own the, the real estate where two of them are located yep. in New York City and in uh, in Las Vegas. They came to us during the lockdown and said we have no revenue. All of our stores are closed. We want to keep our employees. We want to pay them full through the lockdown. We need help on rents. When we reopen, we will make it up in rent. Okay. So And they did that. And wow. we, we agreed to do that. We thought that was an outstanding way to run a business. We agreed with that. They reopened and they paid us back all of the missed rent that they had during the lockdown. An how long? Story. They've been six, like, uh, well, nine, six months? They were probably closed for nine to 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very good. So I'm a Chanel, not that I shop there, but I'm a Chanel fan. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Also, <clears> keep, keep in mind, too, that uh, I'm wondering how they managed to make that back. And then I'm remembering that oh. people physically couldn't go and spend any money for, for a year and a half. So that's that's where that's uh, that came from. People, yes. there, there was, we've never been more cashed up. Exactly. Before, we're starting to see credit card credit card debt is actually starting to hockey stick as well yes. uh, over there. So that- now let me use, let me use uh, um, Dallas, Texas as an example where we're headquartered. Yeah. Dallas, Texas does not need seven Chanel stores. You sure? Which is, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need two. Yeah. That's what Chanel has decided. And, and the retailers have recognized that they have to be excellent online and in bricks and mortar. Yeah. They can't be good in one and not good in the other. They have to be excellent in both to be successful going forward. Okay. We, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it is a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Now, so what Chanel is, is recognized in all these in LV and everybody else mm. is that, okay, we don't need seven stores anymore in Dallas. We only need two. Our square, our total footprint, our square footage is way lower than it was, than it, than it was historically. Yeah. So we can, rent doesn't matter. We can afford to pay much higher rent to be in the two shopping centers that we have to be in. So our our job as your real estate manager is to is to own those those shopping centers where Chanel wants to be long term. Okay, and it's, you and, and and you do so, si- similar to office. So the rents we're getting in the best in those best shopping centers are higher than they've ever been. Now I mentioned the reason why I wanted to get into European luxury goods uh, because of the Chinese reawakening. I noticed that you've got some investments that are here in in Seoul, and we won't go into the specifics of those ones that are there. Where do you see the Asian shift based on based on what you're seeing in the in, in the industrial space there yeah well one of the really nice uh, one of the competitive advantages we have and one of the fun things about our business is that we invest globally mm-hmm. and that we invest across the risk return spectrum from core to, to value add to high return and equity and debt and so we get to see where we, we can go where we see best relative value and we have been uh, for a long time we've been overweight the US and that's worked out really well. In the U.S., the U.S. reopened first and had a had a wonderful reopening boom, and the performance uh, followed. So our portfolio has performed very well with that that U.S. overweight. Uh, <clears throat> Asia has an opportunity to be next. 
Asia's the, the reopening opportunity and the reopening boom that could happen in Asia. I'm not saying it's going to be as big as it was in the U.S., but it, but it should be it should create some interesting opportunities from a return perspective in countries like Australia, Japan and Korea, the three you mentioned. Yep. And in those three countries make up roughly 25 percent each of our, our Pan-Asia portfolio. So 75 percent of our Pan-Asia portfolios in those three countries. Yep. The, the, the other 25 percent is going to be rest of Asia. Uh, you mentioned Korea specifically. Um, Korea is a great example of, of us being able to go where we see best relative value because the the logistics logistics is everybody's favorite uh, sector globally. And the logistics buildings that we're selling at three percent cap rates or lower in the United States uh, and, and even in Australia, we're selling at six percent cap rates in in Korea. And to us, that made no sense. And so we were able to go into Korea and buy and build uh, logistics properties to add to our portfolios at significantly higher income returns than what we could get in other developed markets like the U.S. and Australia. Is, and adding those to our portfolio has been very beneficial. Is that where you see the best growth across the portfolio? In, in Well, today, Asia, yes. Yep. We, we, we would be overweight Asia today for, for the, some of the reasons that I mentioned. Asia also has amazingly good uh, demographic story um, and uh, growing demographics, growing middle class and urbanization happening. And when you have people moving into the cities, that creates demand for property. That creates demand for for everything, for office, residential, retail, logistics. So yep. we're seeing that in uh, in uh, in Asia. Well, Max, I'm uh, I'm not sure if there's anything else you wanted to touch on today. But like I said, Friday it's lunchtime. I'm looking at the bridge. The rain seems to have stopped, which means that we can I can go and get something to eat, which is fantastic. So uh, how can people get exposure to the fund? So it is a thirty what is a thirty two billion dollar fund that I've got here. Um, there are local ways of getting access to that too. Like I mentioned, the reason why I'm, I'm a big fan of it is is because of how it is democratizing the, the, the glo- a global real estate fund that retail investors can actually get exposure to it too. So through whatever platform you uh, you use, if you do use a platform, then you can get in. Um, what used to be what used to be ticket sizes of ten million dollars is now down to twenty thousand dollar pops, which is fantastic and makes it much more uh, much more accessible to regular people uh, like you and me. Now. Uh, you've got, what, 70% direct uh, investment, 30% in listed liquid real estate securities and cash. That's uh, It was explained to me what that is. That's a nice way of putting that is it's, it's a sleeve. It's a, a redemption sleeve. It gives you a good buffer. Liquidity. Liquidity. Yeah, liquidity <laughs> sleeve, not a redemption <laughs> sleeve. Yeah, liquidity right. sleeve um, just for ins and outs because property is obviously a bit chunky. You can't just sell a couple of bricks. It's a, the easiest way of dis- uh, describing that to people. It's fantastic. Um, Max? Head of the Invesco Global Real Estate Fund. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Everyone, uh, that was Max Swango, Swango sorry, uh, from the uh, Invesco Global Real Estate Fund. Cheers to that. Don't forget, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter. Uh, and I'm going to give you all those details. You know what they are already. It's also all of my stuff is on my website as well, Google Wheel and Capital. I'm going to put a link to how, how people can get access and some of the details that I've been sent uh, about Invesco because I'm keen on, on it and I'm keen on getting more access to my clients to getting getting them involved in more global por- uh, global property from a local level, if, uh, if that's a good way of saying it. Local exposure to a global area is always the best way for people to do an investment. You're not mucking around with... Uh, Forex and you're not mucking around with stuff overnight as well. I need my sleep. 
I thought of funny. Funnily enough, I was up on midnight on Monday night uh, trying to get Nvidia done, and I was thinking, I'm just, I'm just getting too old to be to be <laughs> selling. What was I selling? I was selling a put spread on an, an Nvidia, and just thinking, I got to get another job. But anyway, <laughs> look, I do the best for my clients as I can. Um, now that's all good. Uh, so thank you very much, everyone, and uh, and I'll catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.